So there's this just completely hysterical dance scene in the movie Hitch uh, with Will Smith and Kevin James. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, but it involves Kevin James, who's preparing for the most important date of his life. And by the way, one of the masters of physical comedy uh, and entertainment. And he's preparing for the most important date of his life, and Will Smith is his dating consultant. And so he wants to see him dance, and, and, and so uh, he puts this music on, and, and James just starts busting all the moves. I mean, all the moves. Start the fire, make the pizza, Q-tip, 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 throw it away, throw it away. I, I, I grew up as a conservative Baptist, so those do not come naturally to me <laughs> at all. To all of this, which Smith replies with a slap, never do that again. From now on, this is where you live, right here. You live right here. This is home. Elbows six inches from the waist, 90 degree angles. Don't you bite that lip, because <laughs> we all bite our lip when we dance um, for some reason. I'm not sure why that is. Not to make the sublime, by the way, this is so easy to find on YouTube if you're at all interested in watching it. Not to make the sublime ridiculous. But St. Paul told the church at Colossae the same kind of thing in the epistle reading for today, the Feast of Christ the King. And by the way, I'm going to be teaching from Colossians 1, verses 9 through 20, if you've got your Bible or your Bible on a device. He tells them the same kind of thing because in this passage, Paul presents Christian faith fundamentally as a move from one kingdom to another. In verse 13, he describes it as a move from one domain, the domain of darkness, into the domain of the son that he loves. Our tendency is to get obsessed with all of these momentary and temporal things like politics and prices and pandemics. Not that these things don't matter, but they're absolutely not ultimate. And if Paul were talking to us today, I think he'd say exactly the same thing that Smith said to James in the movie. From now on, this is where you live. Right here. You live right here. This is home. You've been delivered, past tense, from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the sun. You live here, in this kingdom. And of course, this kingdom, as all kingdoms, has a king. And in this passage, Paul emphatically punctuates the all-embracing authority and centrality of Jesus and shows us that as citizens of this new kingdom, our lives must be centered on Christ the King. But why? Why must Jesus be the center? Why not look at Jesus as so many Christians do today as kind of ancillary to the rest of our lives? Why must everything in our lives be reoriented to him? Paul's simple answer is his greatness. 
Look at what he says in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word he uses for image there is icon or the exact representation. Paul is saying something akin to what the apostle John says in his gospel. John 1.18, that no one has ever seen the father, but Jesus Christ has perfectly revealed him. It means that when we look at Jesus, we see God the Father. And Paul's drawing on the incarnation and saying, Jesus Christ has done something no one has ever done. He has revealed God in the flesh. He's come to earth to show us who God really is. And we can most unmistakably see who God is and in how Jesus revealed him as enthroned on a human cross. And so, immediately, the way we imagine greatness has to be reformed, remodeled, and renewed. Because that's our king, the one on the cross. Paul goes on to say in verse 16 that Jesus is the creator. He's describing the second person of the Trinity, the unique son of God, who's come to earth as the incarnation of God himself when he says, He's the one who created everything. And then he lists the things he's created, which is a fairly impressive list. Things in heaven and, and, and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, everything, everything has its origin in Jesus Christ. He's the creator and he's preeminent because he's the creator. But not only has he created the world, Paul goes on to say that the world exists for him. In other words, not only does everything in the world owe its existence to Jesus, it also owns its continuance to Jesus. And because of that, it has an obligation to Jesus to live in reference, not to ourselves or to a political ideology or to a nation, but to him. In verse 17, he says, everything holds together in Jesus Christ. What does he mean by that? Simply this, that the world coheres because Jesus Christ is the creator. Coherent is an adjective that means united in forming a whole. I think the best way to think about coherence is to think of a bunch of individual threads that are woven into a seamless cloth. And we move, when we move our lives away from him, as we, as we turn our lives from him, as we reject his authority as king, as we reject his greatness, our own greatness diminishes. It has to because the world coheres in him. The coherence in our own lives and that of our culture begins to unravel. And we know this is happening more and more all around us. But as we move toward Jesus Christ, life begins proportionately, proportionally more and more to cohere. It's sustained. Paul is saying that Jesus has preeminence over everything because he's the creator of everything and everything exists for him and everything coheres in him. 
It is only through Jesus Christ that we begin to understand who God is and that we begin to understand who he's created us to be as well. Paul emphasizes here not only the godness of Jesus Christ, but also his humanness as the climax of humanity reaching its fullest expression. Paul wants us to begin to understand the depth of what the incarnation means. All things were created by Jesus Christ and all things exist for him. And it's in him that all things hold together. And for those reasons, he is the only one worthy and able to redeem all things as well. This is very much what the collect for today in, in, uh, on Christ the King points to. All things have their roots in him and exist in him. And it's only as they turn toward him as their defining center that they begin to become more fully what they ought to be. All things. That's our king. So many Christians today embrace a kind of privatized piety that unwittingly reduces the greatness of Jesus to a simple and manageable little sphere of, of our lives, the forgiveness of sins. Dallas Willard calls this the gospel of sin management. And it's perfectly reflected in the used to be very popular adage, and I'm sure most of you can complete it. Christians aren't perfect, just Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Really? I mean, is that all we are? Just forgiven? I mean, I, I don't want to be misunderstood that our sins are forgiven and we can live in intimate relationship with the holy God is mind-boggling. And Paul actually points to that here. But mind-boggling as that is, salvation is so much bigger. It's scope so much profounder than that. One commentator uh, in defining conversion says, conversion is the turning of all of ourselves to God without leaving anything behind or outside. It's a refocusing of even the material life and its cultural, vocational, and social underpinnings and all of our feelings, affections, and instincts in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Conversion is a turning of everything toward the greatness of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Cultural, vocational, social, our feelings, our affections, our instincts. Think about the implications of that. For you. For your neighbors. For every place where you have some dominion. Everything. I really like preaching this passage because actually you cannot, you cannot exaggerate it. He uses words like everything and all, <laughs> all the time. I assume that since he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's what it means. Paul is asserting that it all, everything, not only falls under the rubric of the reign of Jesus Christ, but also only begins and finds its completeness in him. That's our king. Finally, I want to grind an act. Oh, I'm sorry. I, was, I mean, spend a little time. I, I was 
thinking I needed to grind an axe, and I probably am going to sound like I am, but I'm actually going to do it more pastorally by spending a little time with what Paul says here in verse 18. And this is what he says. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. So, church. Why does Paul mention church here? What's the big deal about church? In fact, why church? I mean, so much of what we hear around us is I'm spiritual, but not religious. I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I have a personal relationship with God. Why do I need to go to church? Or the now very popular, why not just watch online? It's so much more convenient. And by the way, it is so much more convenient. <laughs> you are not wrong in that. That's one layer of questions. And then there's another layer. I pointed to some history as I started this sermon. Why the historic church as opposed to the ahistoric church? Ahistoric in, this, in the sense that it's disconnected from any sense of the historical and biblical understanding of the church. It goes something like this. I have a private relationship with God, an individual covenant with God. And when I individually read the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaks to me. So, implied in this question, since it's all about me, what's the big deal about church? In fact, what even is the church? Well, fortunately, um, the Anglican Catechism covers that in question 92. The church is the whole community of faithful Christians in heaven and on earth, called and formed by God into one people. I want you to just absorb how much theology is just in that one statement. The church on earth gathers to worship God in word and sacrament, to serve God and neighbor, and to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it goes on, Holy Scripture teaches me to view the church as God's family and as the body and bride of Christ. So firstly, we can say from this that the church is not a what, the church is a she, and she is the bride of Christ. St. Paul makes it as clear as he can in Ephesians 5 that the church is the bride of Christ. It's one of the reasons that brides in Christian weddings wear white. She's wearing white because she's representing as a living icon the church in its purity. Remember, we see all the saints and martyrs dressed in white robes in the Revelation of John. So we have the husband and wife, male and female, the bride, paralleling, paralleling this theme. So the church is not an it, it's a she, a very definite identity. The bride. Secondly, the church is not an inanimate thing. It is Christ's body. It's alive, living, 
and animated. And when we stop thinking about the church as an it, an inanimate object, or maybe this way, a loose collection of individuals who have individual experience with God, which is actually pretty Gnostic, people have private individualized knowledge of God, then as individuals, they get together as a collection of individuals with their own individualized experience with God. That's how relate, they relate to each other, and that's how they relate to God. But that's not the teaching of Scripture. And we learn this particularly through the two sacraments ordained by Christ, and as it says in the 1662 Catechism, generally necessary to salvation, baptism, and communion. When we are baptized, we do have a very personal experience, but it's not an individualized experience. And this is why we do not do private baptisms, except in extremis. It's part of the community. It's not something that's cut off or segregated from the rest of the body. In it, we are brought into the living body of Christ. Evangelical Anglicans understand that coming to faith involves both subjective and objective elements. Subjective in the sense that we believe we must come into a personal relationship with Jesus. We must receive him by faith. We must, as it says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, personally confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our own hearts that God raised him from the dead. We must have an interior experience with Jesus. But it doesn't end there. It's also objective in the sense that when we are then baptized, we are then baptized into the one church. In baptism, we become a vital and living part of a living body. Baptism is that definitive moment in which we are brought into the body of Christ. It's an objective anchor, something that God does. And you can look back on it and remember it and you do well to do so. In fact, that's why every time we baptize somebody, we all together say the Apostles' Creed instead of the Nicene Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed is the baptismal creed. It's what we say at baptisms, and it's part of our catechism. In baptism, there's an objective ontological change wherein we become a citizen of another kingdom. It's like being sworn into a nation. You think about people who are preparing to become a citizen of the United States. You don't wake up as a citizen of another country and suddenly decide, you know what, I'm going to become a citizen of the United States. And then because you want to be, you are. No, there's an actual process. You see, you see that in Israel. You weren't an Israelite if you weren't circumcised. And in the New Testament, in Colossians, particularly in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11, 12, we are taught that baptism not only takes the place of circumcision, it is circumcision's full expression. In case you're wondering how many times I can say circumcision in one minute, that's probably the limit. And it's no longer just for eight-day-old males. Baptism is for everybody. That's what Paul's emphasizing in Galatians when he says there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Greek, male or female. He's not saying those categories don't exist. 
He's saying that when we come into Christ, there's only one body to be baptized into, and we are all equally and vital members of that body, the church. This is what Paul emphasizes in Ephesians 5 with the husband and wife relationship. What man hates his own body? No, he cares for his body, so therefore he will care for his wife because they've become one. And in 1 Corinthians, he says that whoever has the Spirit is one with the Lord. He talks about that ontology, that beingness, the, the, the one being that a man and a woman share when they're married. But then there's that same beingness, that same mystical union between Christ and his bride, his body, and the members of that body are members of Christ and members of each other. That's preserved for us, even in the way we celebrate Holy Communion. The one bread. And when COVID's a thing of the past, we are going to get back to breaking from one loaf. I, I really dislike these little wafers. First of all, they taste terrible. But they also don't communicate this. There's one bread and one cup. All those ontological images are being doubled down upon in communion. And with regard to communion, I think it's best just to take seriously the words of Jesus in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 59. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread, live forever. This passage is a big reason why historically the most serious and somber discipline the church could impose on a person was to withhold communion, the spiritual body and blood of Christ from a baptized Christian, also called excommunication, which doesn't mean shunning. It's a very different thing. But you know, it is shocking and grievous to me that so many professing Christians simply self-excommunicate. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but this should not be. And if you go with that biblical understanding of church, you realize that you cannot be a Christian and be isolated. If you're in a relationship with God, you're going to be in the church. So when people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, candidly, they don't know much about Jesus. Because the groom and the bride, the head and the body, Jesus and the church cannot be separated. I'm very reluctant, and, and those of you who know me know this to be true. I'm very reluctant to tell anyone what they need to do because it's so 
much easier and unkind to live someone else's life for them. I can very easily see what you need to do. I often can't see what I need to do, though. And I'm sure the same is true of you for me. But I'm not really shy about this one thing. Unless there are genuine and pressing circumstances that prevent it, and there are those, you need to be in church. It's not really about our feelings or our convenience. It is a discipline. But the word disciple comes from the word discipline. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, there is still a yoke. There's still a burden. We can never forget that grace is opposed to earning. It is not opposed to effort. And part of the effort of grace is taking our place, sharing our gifts, being in community, loving our neighbors, serving and strengthening the church. This, I believe, is the clear and unambiguous teaching of Scripture and a necessary part of what it means to be Christian. And Jesus because of his greatness, is at the head of the church. He's at the front of the church. He's at the center of the church. I am the rector or senior pastor of this church, but Christ the King is the head of this church. Steve and I preside in our worship, but the presidency of this church belongs to Jesus. We have a bishop, but he bows to a king, and that's our king. And it's the greatness of Christ the King it's in the greatness of Christ the King that we see the depth of the love of God for us and for all creation. In Christ the King, all the brokenness, all the sorrow, all the sadness, all the mess of this domain of darkness begins to be erased. He takes us into himself, takes it all into himself, and he transfers us into his kingdom. That's our king, and his kingdom is where we live. We live right here. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.